When we walk into a classroom, how do we as leaders change the perception so we are viewed as coaches instead of an evaluator? My guest today has constructed a roadmap to help instructional leaders build trust with their staff, identify their strengths, design important questions, and add value to any classroom. Today's guest is Amy Illenworth, and she worked her way from teacher to an assistant superintendent as she used this coaching model to impact classrooms and many aspiring leaders. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Amy, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and today I would love to hear about your leadership journey as you went from a teacher to an assistant superintendent. Sure. Thank you. I began my teaching career actually in the state of Virginia, which is where I went to college. And two years later, I moved out to San Diego because why wouldn't you want to live in San Diego? (laughs) I uh, began began teaching out here and was a middle school teacher. I taught Spanish and English and history and pretty much anything they threw at me. But pretty early on in my career here in San Diego, I had a principal mentor who saw some leadership in me before I saw it in myself. And she actually encouraged me first to become what was known in our district as a peer coach slash staff developer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really a literacy coach position, but I actually was coaching literacy across all content areas. So she encouraged me to take on this role and I was able to do it part time while being a part time teacher and then transitioning fully into a leadership, a literacy coach position. So that was my first step out of the classroom and into some leadership while still being a peer coaching other peers. And then that same principle pretty much dragged me into getting my admin credential. And I became what was known at the time as a literacy administrator under her, which uh, in San Diego Unified a long time ago, we actually had administrators at the high school level over different content areas. Hmm. So it's kind of like I was the vice principal for the English department. So I was able to continue my literacy coaching. But in that case, I actually had stepped into an administrator role. That role didn't last very long due to budget cuts and, and you know, ebb, ebb and flow of a budget of a system. But then I, I went to be back to become a vice principal. And so I was a middle school vice principal for a few years before I knew I was ready to become a principal. And luckily, I'd had another mentor along the way who these two principals really were my first two mentors pushing me to continue to grow my own leadership and to step into new roles. And I feel like every time I've ever changed a job, it was It wasn't because I didn't love the job I was doing, but because I wanted to continue to have more impact on a greater scale. So when I left being a vice principal, I became an elementary principal, which I always say is like being the rock star. Every kid loves you. You just hear your name called down the hallways and it's incredibly hard work. I had no vice principals, no counselors, nobody on that school supporting me, except for all the hardworking staff who were there. Incredibly hard, but also incredibly rewarding. So I was an elementary principal for a number of years. And during those years, I began to try to understand what was going on at the district office level. And I was really invested in curriculum and instruction and professional development and wanting to continue my my heart of a coach, really wanting to continue coaching, again, beyond my own school. And I did some district level coaching work. And it made me realize I was ready to step into that district level administrative position. So I then became a director of educational services for a small elementary school district where I was able to get my hands into just about everything, curriculum, instruction, budget, just that was during the Common Core rollout. So I just learned it all and and had to co-lead it all with teachers. 
Um, and then my previous job, right before I became an assistant superintendent, I was actually a director of professional growth. I went back to a secondary district. So I, I flip-flopped back and forth from elementary and secondary throughout my career. And my director of professional growth job was one of the best jobs I ever had too, because my whole job was leadership development. Mm. And in that system, we were the largest secondary district in the state of California. So we had 25 principals and 71 assistant principals. Mm. And my core role was to coach those people and to provide ongoing professional development for all of those leaders, mm -hmm. as well as creating an aspiring leader program, which I'm happy to share more about too. Yeah. So that job was just incredible. But I also have been in my heart just yearning to become an assistant superintendent. And I, it's, it's not even the title, but it's just the thought of continuing to have an impact on curriculum instruction and principles that I was really excited about. And an opportunity came up that I was just able to get here in July. So I'm three, three and a half months into a new position as an assistant superintendent. Oh, that's wonderful. And so, Amy, just for those who are listening who don't know what the role of an assistant superintendent is, will you just clarify what all that you have your hands touched on? Sure. In my my district has nine schools, element nine elementary schools. We're a K six district, and so my department I won't say me, but my department I have a wonderful team that I've inherited. We are in charge of all curriculum, instruction, and assessment for the district. So everything that goes in the hands of kids and teachers comes through our office. That includes the professional development, the curriculum committees, the adoptions of new curriculum. My department also runs our before and after school programs, and I'm in a very green forward initiative thinking district, and my department also runs an organic farm as well. You've had so many different titles. What educational leadership position was your favorite, and what part of the job made it so enjoyable? Well, again, I... As an elementary principal, you're just a rock star to the kids. And so it was so much fun to know I could leave a classroom and still have an impact on those 750 kids at my school. But again, that, that director of professional growth, being able to impact leaders who would then impact thousands of students was really powerful for me because coaching is at the center of all I, I love and do. So I was really proud to be able to coach so many aspiring leaders and leaders in that role. When you transitioned from a teacher to an administrator, what was one of the biggest misconceptions you had moving into a new role? I think probably there was probably two of them. I think I think many teachers, myself included, never knew what went on up in that office and what people were actually doing. So I quickly learned how much work there was and how busy we were, uh, which also entailed told me a lot about the teachers I was teaching with at the time because I first became an administrator in a school where I was a teacher, oh, wow. and I. I didn't know what teaching looked like in some of their classrooms before that. So that was a big eye opener. And I think one of the other biggest lessons I learned was how to work with classified staff who in California, that would be our secretaries, our custodians. You don't interact with that group of people on a campus nearly as much as a teacher as you do when you're an administrator. And that was something nobody ever taught me about in a class or until I got the role and had mm -hmm. to start coaching and evaluating those people. And so I was told by my mentor that a lot of leadership skills are developed through experience. So what was one trial or failure you experienced that created the most growth? That's a great question. I think probably one of my greatest growing areas was when I became a principal, I had moved to a new district. So not only was I learning the new role of principal, a new district, I had come from middle school down to elementary school. So I was just learning everything. And um, my biggest challenge honestly came from working with the teachers union because that was also something very new to me. Mm -hmm. In my past uh, roles, my mentors had, hadn't really prepared me for that. And I think they had both been very lucky with union relationships, but I had walked into a new district that had some 
a lot of animosity between teachers and administrators. And so I walked in to a minefield that I didn't know was a minefield. And I, I'm, I'm sure I made mistakes along the way, mostly in the going too fast and not taking enough time to build the relationships, which is why I talk so much about that in, in all my work now. Sure. Um, you know, I, A, I had a sense of urgency and wanted to get to the work, but B, I didn't realize how important it was to be a partner with your unions and your, your stakeholders. And so I had to learn that the hard way. So I want to talk about the role that you had where you were working with aspiring leaders. What was so important about that program or what were you doing in that role to build future leaders? So uh, it was an amazing experience. My The person who was the assistant superintendent over me, her job title was actually assistant superintendent of systems innovations and leadership development. And that was designed strategically by the superintendent at the time, knowing how important leadership development was. Again, when you have 71 assistant principals and 25 principals, you always want to have people on deck ready to step into those positions as people move up and out. And so, and we had also had a, a pretty high soon to be retirement age level in our admin group. So we knew that we were going to have a number of openings. So we, we did a number of things at once. We were working with um, the Wallace organization. We ended up getting a grant with the Wallace organization to work with one of our local universities to begin to talk about leadership development and creating that pipeline from the university all the way into an admin role. So we were getting great research and literature and discussions through our grant work. And what I was able to do was create what we called an aspiring administrator academy. We were targeting those teachers who actually had the admin credential already, but who hadn't stepped into the role yet of an administrator. Because again, in our large district, we had over 100 teachers sitting with that pre-credential ready to jump into an an assistant principal role, but who weren't there or weren't quite ready yet. Mm -hmm. So we were targeting that population. And we actually had the teachers apply to be part of the academy. And then what I also did was I targeted the current assistant principals and I asked the more veteran APs to apply to be mentors in the program. So when I accepted a new teacher, I partnered them with a current assistant principal who would be their mentor. And what we did was that group of people, my first year, I think we had 16 people in the academy and 11 AP mentors. We all, the APs, myself and the teachers met every month and we talked about what the role of an AP was like in our district. And they had to do presentations. They had to go out and do job shadowing experiences and they had to do it all in their own time. We had zero dollars to run this program. So what I think I'm most proud of in the three years we ran it, we had, I want to say, 42 graduates from the program, and 25 of them are currently assistant principals. So they all moved into the jobs. And out of my 15 to 20 AP mentors, I think I'm up to 10 of them who have moved into the role of principal. So it was actually a dual mentorship where I was mentoring teachers to go into AP jobs and APs to go into principal jobs as well. So I always love providing leaders with examples of practical strategies and initiatives, just like the one that you presented now. So what is one initiative you implemented on your campus or at the district level that you're extremely proud of? One of the things I'm really proud of, and this goes back a couple of years because the most recent one is my my academy there. One of the other things I'm really proud of is the way my, the way my district actually handled the whole Common Core rollout, because that is still a dirty word to some people. Yeah. But we made it very clear when, when we knew new standards were coming, we involved every teacher in our district from a very early stage. And we brought teachers in to be part of curriculum writing committees because we knew there wasn't going to be a, a, a curriculum to adopt right away. So we knew we had to figure out a way to teach everyone what the standards were asking for and to find new resources on our own that would get 
to the level of learning we wanted. And so we actually had teacher teams write units of study for every grade level for language arts and for math for our entire K-8 district. And that was teacher ground level work. Uh, yes, I facilitated it as the director at the time, but it. But I'm. But what I'm proud of is how many teachers had their hands in that work and then helped present it in the summer PD that we offered for all the rest of the teachers who hadn't directly developed it. So it was really a teacher-driven initiatives that it wasn't perfect by any means, and we didn't get it all right the first time, but it was our work collectively. Amy, I want to dive into your new book, The Coach Adventure, which I absolutely love. It was such a quick read, but it was just compacted with such great information. So in the beginning of the book, you describe the role of an instructional leader, but it touches on a misconception that I think is really important for our aspiring leaders. Does an instructional coach need to be a content expert or is the role of an instructional coach go beyond the content? Thank you so much for reading the book first. And that's such a great question. I think that it, it is nearly impossible for an instructional coach, especially as an administrator, to be an expert in everything. If you think about a typical middle school or high school campus, you, you've come up to your role as an administrator credentialed in one or two areas of content. And for myself, I can tell you, I have I've always had quite a fixed mindset around my math abilities. So that was never my area of strength. But I could walk into a calculus class and I could still coach the teacher. I am not going to pretend I'm an expert on calculus and I'm not going to be able to correct if there's misconceptions from the teacher's point of view on the math learning. But what I can do is I can know good pedagogy. I can recognize student engagement. I can see who's participating, who is not participating. I can see how questions are received, how students are asking questions, if they're asking questions. I can look at the room environment. I can see how the teachers and the students interact with one another throughout a lesson. So there's a lot that I can see without actually diving into the content. And I will put the caveat on, if I have concerns about the content, if I'm feeling like students are struggling more than they should, I would reach out to somebody who is a math expert to help me at that level of coaching. But I so often administrators especially get scared to dive into that coaching realm when they don't think they can be an expert in calculus or French or third grade, whatever the content might be. We do have some school districts and positions that do target a specific content area for their coaching. In that case, I would expect if, if you hire math coaches, you want them to be the best math teachers they can possibly be to coach around math. But all the places I've ever been, we identified coaches going across content areas, across grade levels, across school systems. And so it was really important to develop instructional knowledge and what to look for in good teaching, not a specific standard or content area. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what is the difference between an instructional coach versus an evaluator? And how do we change that perception of an administrator going into a classroom? I think that's huge too. I do talk about that a lot in the book because I also learned that the hard way as a new principal. Mm -hmm. I went in guns blazing to all my classrooms ready to just start giving feedback and coaching up my teachers, but they had never had that experience and all they saw was an evaluator coming in and writing stuff down. And that became so scary. In fact, that was again the union heavy place where I wasn't allowed to write anything on a paper and take it out of the classroom unless I was doing a formal observation. So I, so I had to do a lot of recalibrating on what coaching was. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's important if you are an administrator, you need to clarify for your teachers what the evaluation process looks like. We all have a typically um, 
collective bargaining agreement on how evaluations go for teachers, and that's a typical process. And honestly, that's not very effective for most teachers. They get observed maybe once a year, maybe once every other year, and they get this one formal write-up, mm -hmm. and it feels like a dog and pony show for most people. Yeah. I don't think that process has to be worthless, but in most places, it is worthless. In fact, I know people who have signed off on being observed when they didn't even have an administrator ever come in the classroom. So you have to know that you're fighting against those past practices when you step into this role. And you also have to be really careful and strategic with how you communicate what this new role would look like. If teachers aren't used to seeing you in the classroom, you have to get them used to seeing you. And you really have to start by giving, I, I use the word appreciation a lot, giving those positive praises around what's going well for students in the classroom, but appreciating the hard work that goes on. Because if you come in for a five minute snapshot and leave and you say negative things right away, you're just going to decimate that teacher's trust in you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that does feel very evaluative. But in a coaching role, my, my job is not to evaluate or judge what I'm seeing. It's to help the teacher reflect on their best work. And if, if I don't think I'm seeing their best work, all I want to do is ask more questions to help that teacher get better at their work. And that's a perfect segue. In the book, you talk about the power of questions. So what kind of questions should an instructional coach ask to provide a meaningful conversation with the teacher? So I use the phrase open-ended, non-judgmental, reflective questions because I, I think all of those words matter. Open-ended meaning you don't want a yes or no question. You don't want a question that has one right answer. And you also don't want a question that has your answer already built into it. So if I say to you, why didn't you have the kids stop and write a note before you called on somebody? I'm already telling you what I want to hear the answer, right? Mm -hmm. Or why did you call on Jamie when Amy's hand was up? I want the question to be open-ended enough that the teacher is going to answer it in whatever way makes sense to him or her. And the non-judgmental part is also huge. So often just starting a question with the word why can be scary for teachers. If Again, if they think of you as the evaluator coming in, when you say why, a teacher will often pause and go, what does she mean? What did I do wrong? Why is she asking me that? Did I do something wrong? And I never want people to feel that way. So I often tell people to start with the word how. How did you engage students during your lesson? If I ask that, there's no judgment. I'm assuming you did. It's actually a positive judgment, if anything, that I'm assuming you did engage students during your lesson, but I want to hear you reflect on what ways you did that intentionally. And if a teacher says, I don't know, I've, I've taken notes on the observation, I can go into details, but I always like to begin with those open-ended, non-judgmental questions that get the teacher talking because that's really my goal, is for me to do more listening than talking in a coaching conversation. I love the fact that you talk about growth a lot in the, in the book. And so if a professional learning network is not established on a campus, what should our aspiring leaders do to establish a network of support? I think that's critical. And sometimes you're the only person on your campus in a particular role or wanting to aspire into another role. So I encourage people to go outside of their, their particular school system, whether that means connecting with other people within your district or connecting with people through social media who are in your position, um, joining networks, listservs of emails, reading blogs, connecting with people through professional book studies. And there's a million ways you can connect on social media these days. But I think some people feel very isolated in their work. And so that's why I keep talking about that idea of building your own coaching community. If you want to do this work and you're alone in it, you're not really alone in it. You're just alone in your particular context. Mm -hmm. So look beyond your context to find other people trying the work. 
And sticking with the topic of growth, how can instructional coaches impact professional learning on a campus? I think that is huge. If you are a teacher in a coaching role, I think you want to be a partner with your administrator so that you can help develop the professional development for your colleagues. You can do that in your role within a grade level or a team. You can step in and be a leader who leads grade level or, or department professional development. You can offer to do sessions at an ed camp or some other kind of style workshop. You can also go beyond your own district and offer workshops and professional developments to others to hone in your skills and connect with people outside of your organization doing the work. And if you are the administrator, you are most definitely responsible for that professional development. I've worked with a lot of administrators who didn't see themselves as instructional leaders, so they always felt like they had to hire somebody in to do that professional development. But I want people to see that if you believe you're an instructional leader, you can partner with your staff to provide that professional development. Again, you're not the expert in all the areas, but if you are in your classrooms regularly and you know what your teachers need based on student data, based on your observations, you can plan a lot of the professional development that is driven by what your teachers need to continue to grow. Mm -hmm. So what can instructional coaches do to address roadblocks along the way? So for instance, if we go into a classroom and we see something that we want to change in regards to practices, but when we start using our questioning, there are responses like, well, that's how we've always done it, or I don't need coaching, my class is fine. What is your advice in regards to an instructional coach hearing those responses and, and how should they respond? My first bit of advice is you are not alone. We've all heard those things. Those statements <laughs> are made in many places, right? Um, and people often say that we've always done it that way is such a dirty phrase. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. So I wouldn't be judgmental about that phrase, but really what I would tell that coach to do is stop and go backwards to build a relationship with that person. Because so often when we hear those phrases that feel very negative to us, they're actually hiding a fear. And often the fear is a teacher, it's not so easy to say, I don't know how to do this, or I don't think I can be successful with, with this group of kids, or I feel like a failure and I don't know how to ask for help. That's often what's being masked by those other phrases of don't want to do this, don't need your help, I'm good, thank you. And then sometimes it's, we just don't know what we don't know. So the, the more you can build a personal and professional relationship with the people who you want to coach, the more they will begin to trust you. So building that relationship and creating trust are really important. And then just being a fly on the wall in their classroom and sharing what is going well for kids will help them, again, engender that trust so that they want to listen to you when you have other questions or other suggestions. And as a coach, there is a point when you go beyond the reflective questioning and you become more directive. That can't happen until that trust is established, though. So if I believe that there's maybe some inequities going on, because that's often what tugs at my heart, if I see kids who are not being exposed to grade level content standards, don't have access to rigorous curriculum, uh, that tugs at my heart until I want until I can do something about it. But the teacher is not intentionally ignoring students. They often have no idea who is sitting in the back quietly or who isn't as engaged as they could be. So I want to make sure that teacher trusts me so that I can get to that harder conversation. And I do that by ha having enough observational data from his or her classroom to have that harder conversation with some data points. So as an administrator, and you've probably experienced this yourself, we obviously wear a lot of different hats and we have a lot of different responsibilities. Other guests have talked about is the fact that they would like to be um, in the classroom more and they would like to be an instructional leader even though they feel like they don't have as many opportunities. What would be a good starting point for an administrator? 
Absolutely. So I, I, I think that's a reality. You have to just acknowledge that when, like you said, when you're an administrator, you wear so many hats and you have to be prepared to be flexible because random things come up all the time that you cannot plan for. Mm -hmm. So I want to always acknowledge that. But I also want to acknowledge that some administrators get so used to operating in chaos that they think they can't ever plan for their days. And many of our days are pretty planable. There may be a one crisis here or there, one discipline issue, one, sometimes that leads to much more of an investigation and it ruins your day <laughs> with sure. anything else you have planned. Yeah. But I talk a lot about, especially when I was coaching those 71 APs about time management and the different ways you can manage your time. One of the things I encourage, if you have a team of coaches, administrators on your campus, get together and look at your calendars for the week and figure out who can stay in the office to cover it so that somebody else can be out in the classrooms. So if you work in a middle school or high school where you typically will have a team of administrators, that's always my first piece of advice is figure out who's going to be in the office because, yes, the office needs coverage um, for any of those random emergencies, but figure out who can get out of the office and cover each other at different times so you can get out there. And if you plan ahead for that, you can actually get out more than you think, mm -hmm. even if it's for only a half hour or an hour increment every other day. Start where, however small you need to. If you're an elementary principal like I was, I didn't have anybody else in that office. So what I really had to do was help my office staff learn to help me. Mm. And I did that a couple of ways. I actually communicated with all the parents in my community. And I said, listen, unless it's an emergency, you will not find me in the office between eight and 12 because I spend mornings in classrooms. That's where the root of our instructional work is. I want to be out there supporting your students, supporting our staff as much as I can be. So I made it a point to make clear that drop-in meetings, you weren't going to find me in the morning. You had to call the office to schedule a meeting. And obviously, my secretaries learned pretty early on. We, we walked through what is an emergency and what is not. Yeah. And I even got to the point, I always carried my walkie-talkie with me. And I got to the point where I carried an earpiece, and this was back 12 years ago now, but I had my walkie-talkie connected to an earpiece, so they could always get me in my ear, but I was never disturbing a classroom. I didn't have to step out of the classroom to still hear them calling me about an angry parent in the office. <laughs> and it, so it was. it's all about helping manage, again, that classified staff relationship, empowering them to be able to say no on my behalf or to reschedule on my behalf so that I could get out into the classrooms. And I also had to make sure the teachers knew I was coming out there and what my purpose was in being out there. So I think there's a lot that goes into becoming an instructional leader. And if somebody feels like they don't have time, there's a lot of excuses you can make to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But if you put these supports in place, you can have a lot of success pretty quickly. So talking about advice for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? One of my first pieces of advice, if you are still a teacher wanting to become a leader, get out into other classrooms. Make sure you see what other teaching looks like, because that was one of the biggest shockers for me when I first became a coach was, wow, that person who I plan with in my PLC, I didn't know that's what instruction could look like over there, so for good or for bad, right? It, it's always fascinating to see how many different ways a lesson can be taught or the teachers, different personalities and where they shine within their own instruction. So I would say get out to classrooms whenever you can. And then I would say get out beyond your own building, connect with other leaders, connect with mentors. If there's somebody in your building who is a mentor for you, that's incredible. But if you don't have that, don't give up, go find that mentor somewhere else. If it's somebody you can connect with on Twitter, great. If it's somebody else across another school, across your district, just find somebody who will help give you advice, answer questions, guide you. And nobody's path is the same. You can't expect to emulate somebody's leadership path, mm -hmm. but you can listen to all everybody's different experiences and then craft your own journey accordingly.
So Amy, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? So the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. My hashtag for my book is Coach ADV for Adventure. And on Twitter, I am Amy L. Illingworth. So that looks like a lot of L-I-L-L-I <laughs> all in a row. Um, but that's where I am on Twitter. And then I have a blog called Reflections on Leadership and Learning. And um, I do blog yeah, probably about once a week if I'm having a good month. And I have an entire page dedicated to my book, The Coach Adventure. So people can connect with me through Twitter, through my website, through my blog. And um, I look forward to hearing from people. Yeah. And so for those who are listening to this podcast and they are enjoying what you're saying about your book, how can they get The Coach Adventure? The Coach Adventure is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Amy, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much, Joshua. It was great to talk to you too.